Hello and welcome to the Lost Boys Podcast. I'm Tandy, joined by Harlan Fear. Say hi, Harlan. Hi, Harlan. And in today's episode, we're going to be going over cards from Rise of the Floodborne, Chapter 2 of Disney's Lorcana. Uh, in today's episode, we'll be picking uh, basically our two favorite cards from each color. Some of them work well together, some of them don't. And we're going to discuss uh, how these cards are going to impact, you know, Chapter 2 Constructed. Yeah, it's going to be great. I am so excited for this set to come out. I cannot wait to, you know, be able to just jam all the cards, have the full spoiler, and just get down into the nitty gritty of what the metagame is going to look like. And while we can't do that yet, we thought it would be great to, you know, dive in with what we have and see what our current, you know, front runners are for how the metagame might shape up. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, one set constructed first chapter was really fun. You know, both of us played a bunch of games on Pixelborn. I mean, you and Brennan played like way more than me, but, uh, you know, basically we're at a point where the first constructive format no longer matters because we are basically doubling the size of the card pool. And we all know from playing other games that once you double the size of a card pool, all bets are off. Yeah, exactly. You get all of those cards that were kind of in the middle of the pack are still kind of the middle of the pack, but there's, you know, however many cards were sitting on top of them, there's twice that now. So a lot of the cards you're used to seeing all the time may be role players or kind of completely fall out of the metagame. And all those cards that you're used to seeing, oh yeah, every Ruby deck has four copies of this card. There might be some more of those cards that every deck starts with four of. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think one thing we need to look at when examining uh, cards from Chapter 2 is how many of them are inkable and how many of these are going to be essentially building blocks for your resource base or are they going to be uninkable and are they going to really start to stretch you thin when you hit the 15 plus uninkable mark? Yeah, absolutely. That is the thing. I've always already been really strict about my uninkable counts and you know, there might be a caveat to that of like the, the ramp deck I've been playing has 16 uninkables. Granted, eight of those actually produce an ink right. when you play them. So, it you know, it's it's you have the awkwardness, but not the full punish of it. But, you know, most of my decks, otherwise, I try and stay around 12. And I'm super strict on whether a card is playable based on whether it's inkable or not. If it's uninkable, it has a huge bar to clear. And that bar is only getting higher with the card pool increasing in size. Oh, for sure. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, you're going to see what used to be staples in Chapter 1 Constructed are not only going to be supplanted, they might be forgotten completely. And uh, that's just the nature of the beast when it comes to printing new cards, you know, like if they're the same cost and they're both inkable and their stats are just slightly different and their abilities are slightly different, you start to see the tree branches, you know, going in different directions as you build your deck around this one effect or this other two card effect. And uh, with uh, an ability like shift being a focal point in constructed and in the game in general, you're going to see a lot of those cheaper iterations of the shift characters become mainstays, especially when they're inkable, because they allow you to play that big baddie later on. Yeah, we've already seen the metagame kind of homogenize around Stitch Rockstar and Tinkerbell Giant Fairy as shift and songs, singing a song, are like the two most powerful ways to break parody in a game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, punish your opponent for them being on the draw or, you know, catch up when you were on the draw and behind a bit. That's the easiest way to kind of shift that dynamic. No pun intended. And we now are going to have a lot more 
shift cards. And also with this set being Floodborne based, I think we're actually going to have way more cards with shift in this set two than we were in set one. And it's going to be interesting to see the game kind of keep moving down that path, but also to have counterplay. And it's not just every deck is a Stitch Rockstar deck. No, for sure. And um, some of the cards today we're going to be talking about are some of those big shift characters that we're going to be building around uh, as a focal point. Uh, but uh, let's go ahead and just jump into the new cards so that uh, the, the bulk of our uh, episode this week uh, revolves around actually discussing the new cards in, in specificity. Uh, we're going to start off in amber and we're going to go in order uh, as far as alphabeticals uh, is concerned for the colors. And so in amber, uh, the card that I chose, and I want to talk about this one, uh, maybe not at length, but like at a, to a reasonable degree, is Grand Duke, Advisor to the King. Uh, this two-drop inkable is a 2-2 two -two that quests for one. And his ability is, yes, your majesty, your prince, princesses. Kings and queen characters get plus one strength. Um, if you look at the majority of the characters in Steel and Amber that are seeing play in like the Stitch Rockstar deck, all of the Simbas are princes. Uh, the Cinderellas are going to be princes. You know, the only things that really aren't princes are like Lilo, Captain Hook, and Stitch. But almost everything else is like a Disney prince or princess. And having a two drop that buffs all your other characters makes like challenging more difficult. And when your bodyguard Simba becomes a three three instead of a two two three, that means Rafiki's not challenging and eating it for free and, and things like that. So I think that the static buff is something that you know these smaller characters like all the Simbas really desperately needed. Yeah, I think it's going to add some interesting synergies with the deck and in reality kind of counterplay because as we've seen it's not necessarily intuitive that when you're challenging a character it's really like a defensive measure in the game where you're trying to remove their thing that is questing and pressuring their the to end the game and i think it's going to have some tension with prince eric specifically in amber steel but i think it's also going to be very interesting in decks that you know aren't amber steel just these generic other amber decks as we branch out and all the color pairs become more playable as we get these more diverse card pools that it's it's just a a good card that is going to add dynamic gameplay kind of like uh two drop magara from emerald yeah i see sure. it being you know more of a niche role player that you know it's going to get inked a lot but when it's good it's going to be phenomenal at the two cost so I want to say I think that you're you're thinking of this card strictly as a way to upgrade your characters during challenges, much like support. But what I love about this card, since it's a static buff, it's like support that works on defense as well. And so while I'm questing and using my things to like Simba Protective Cub, they all have a plus one strength. And so, you know, the the one drop Simba Future King, for example, becomes a two two instead of a, a one two. Therefore, it doesn't get eaten by an opposing you know, stitch new dog without trading. And so you're basically just giving these micro upgrades to these relatively weak static characters, but you're gaining those powerful inners playabilities or their static effects. Whereas normally you would maybe lean towards maybe a bigger character, this little more vanilla. Yeah. That that's a huge upgrade too, that I hadn't really considered that it is going to help you be more aggressive because you don't have to worry about slowly losing board presence over each turn as you know a, a card like simba uh future king sorry future king uh just falls by the wayside in challenges right everything survives a challenge with 
Simba Future King for the most part, as soon as it gets that second point of strength, you know, it it threatens to take the other character with it, and then you aren't just like losing your board pressure just for nothing over time just to get, you know, lore. You're actually trading off and eating away at their board while they're doing that, and that lets you keep developing the whole time. Yeah, and you even brought up, uh, you know, Prince Eric, the the two drop from Steel. That one's obviously one of the better challenger cards because it has three willpower and allows you to eat a lot of the two strength characters without much uh, trouble. the The downside is that once you quest with it, it becomes really weak because it only has one strength when it's being challenged. But I think that just having Grand Duke in your deck not only makes your challenger character stronger, but it makes being able to quest a possibility. Whereas I don't think it necessarily was before. And that's really what you're going to see. I think Grand Duke, while it looks like it's better for interacting with your opponent while they're questing, I think what it really does is just adds like an extra layer of difficulty to your opponent when they're trying to challenge your stuff. And the majority of the more popular characters in most of the Disney IPs are going to be prince, princesses, kings, and queens. And so you're just going to see Grand Duke just be good for forever, basically. Oh, yeah. I think this card will be uh, an all-star early early release of the set especially you know at your local game store for your league nights and stuff where it's not pixelborn it's not going to show that plus one on the card you're going to have to remember that it's there mm-hmm. and i think a couple people are probably going to get got by it a couple times um before they get used to it too yeah uh all right well uh moving on to our second card that i think is going to be pretty good in amber harlem why don't you tell us about your pick yeah so i chose the queen conquering princess uh, so she is five cost, inkable, four strength, three willpower, two points of lore, and has shift two. Um, so we still haven't seen a smaller queen yet for the shift. So this is a bit of a speculative pick from me, mm-hmm. but she does have an incredibly powerful ability. Um, her ability is who is the fairest. Whenever this character quest, chosen opposing character gets minus four strength this turn, and chosen character gets plus four strength this turn. And you'll notice the just a a small thing is that minus ability is just your opponent's characters, but your, the plus you can do on their stuff for the cards that care about how strong your opponent's stuff is. Oh, is there anything in particular you want to pair with it? Is there like a sniper sniping a big creature or something like that? Yeah. There's the song, uh, the, what is it? The, uh, mastermind me. All right. Yeah. So the card is, uh, world's greatest criminal mind. It's three cost inkable, uh, banished chosen character with five strength or more. So this is a, an important card, I think, moving forward in Amber decks for being able to keep your oppo- opposing characters that are strong enough to really fight through your Rapunzel effects early and not let your opponent take over the game and the downside typically is that, you know, if your opponent only has smaller characters, this card isn't going to do anything and you're going to have to ink it. But, you know, support characters and a character like the queen can enable this card even when your opponent has smaller characters. Yeah, I, I think that it's super cool that a lot of these buff effects can affect any character in play. And so you're just going to add a lot to this new song's uh t- you know, choice of targets and the five cost queen uh, commanding presence, you know, your card for one of the best in Amber uh, might not have a shift right now, but just that quest juice your thing or my thing. So I can challenge and shrink your other thing. 
just seems like a, a nice little one-two punch. And, you know, we haven't really seen a card do anything remotely close to what the Queen Commanding Presence does. We've seen a lot of the Sapphire cards that shrink one, and we've seen a lot of support cards that buff one. But doing both just essentially means that if your opponent goes to quest, they are in for a rude awakening. Yeah, I, I think I foresee this card being something that absolutely dominates the board when it comes down, especially the fact that it is in Amber, so you have Rapunzel. And your opponent is already respecting Rapunzel, and then this is just a, another huge wrinkle to deal with. Even if we don't get a good uh, base character for this to shift onto, just you putting this in play, they have so many boxes they have to check on their turn to not just get absolutely dumpstered on your turn all right well those are our two picks for the the best two amber cards released so far and how we think they're going to affect uh the decks they're going to go into next up we're going to be moving on to amethyst and i'll start with my favorite amethyst card we're going to go with merlin goat this is one of many Merlins, along with the Madame Mim uh, character. There's just a bunch of iterations uh, from uh, I, uh, the Sword and the Stone, I believe, where they're, they're going back and forth in uh, changing different forms and trying to trump card each other. And so that's kind of the flavor of it, right? They're both just kind of changing to beat each other, one-upping each other with their, uh, their alternate forms. This build um, features... Uh, a 4-3, the quest for one, it costs four to play and is inkable. And the ability is here I come. When you play this character and when he leaves play, gain a lore. So we're having a character that can gain a lore without having to quest. And it pairs really nicely with those Madame Mim cards that return it to your hand. And so I think that this single-handedly will enable a more aggressive Amethyst strategy that can win the game without questing. And so I think it might be really bad for those Ruby Amethyst control decks. Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to put point out that, you know, this is going to be a synergy element that these, you know, especially Amber Amethyst kind of was already leaning into. Um, but now that so much of it is solely contained in Amethyst, that you're going to be able to pair it kind of wherever you want to, which is really important. But, you know, the, the thing that we've experienced so far is that these aggro decks get out ahead to an early lead and then have a hard time closing the game. You know, getting that last two, three, maybe even four points of lore before your opponent starts, you know, Aladdin Swift uh, Heroic Outlawing you or Ursuling you and you just fall out of the game, this Merlin is a way for you to close the game while being an inkable card early so that you don't sacrifice development and have, you know, like a, a Hades Lord of the Underworld rotting in your hand that you can't use right away. You know, you can just ink this and then still have access to that late game plan later on in the game to close it out. Yeah, I mean, I think this card checks all the boxes, right? You know, I think a lot of the cards that we're seeing come out of the new set that look good are uninkable. The fact that this one's inkable and, in my opinion, one of the better uh, enablers for the aggressive decks, you know, it's, it's, or sorry, this is actually a payoff. It's not an enabler. Mm -hmm. The enablers are the things that like return 
it back to your hand. But this just like hits right on curve. You know, it gains lore when it comes in. So like if your opponent has uh, emerald effects that bounce it like, you know, genie on the job or mother knows best doesn't really affect it that much. Obviously, it only quests for one, so it's not that scary, but it kind of quests for two because you've already gotten one on the turn you played it. And so after that, that it's usually all bets are off. You can't really rely on a character to quest more than one time in, in a game of Lorcana. It just doesn't happen that often. Honestly, it's almost more like a quest for three because once it quests, they need to remove it too. Otherwise, it's going to quest again. And when they remove it, you gain another lore also. Oh, right. That's so sick. Yeah. So when they when they deal with it and when it comes into play and when you quest with it. So, yeah, good call on that. So I'm even I missed that from them challenging it. I, I just was assuming it was going to get bounced a bunch. But you're definitely right about it. Just like leaving play from getting banished in combat. An- another thing before we move on is just I want to point out that this card works defensively also where, you know, you get your lore from playing it, and then when you need to use it to challenge their thing and remove their threat, you're still going to get another lore again. Wow. So you, you just keep, you're always going up. I think this card is going to be the backbone of these Amethyst Aggro decks moving forward, for sure. Cool. Uh, all right, so moving on, we want to talk about your uh, pick for Amethyst card. Uh, what you got for me? Yeah, so I have Pinocchio Star Attraction. He's two cost, uninkable, one one with three points of lore and no abilities. So I, I would uh, say that uh, questing for three lore on a two drop is uh, quite an ability, but it's not a keyword of ability. <laughs> yeah, uh, keyword large, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so everybody at home pretty much knows that I'm not the biggest fan of you know Lilo making a wish, but. This Pinocchio is such a threat that I think it completely shifts the dynamic and the paradigm of the games where before we've seen that these decks struggle so much against the steel decks with uh, Tinkerbell Giant Fairy and Grab Your Sword, right? But this is, it's like an army in a can kind of situation where it's so cheap to play this Pinocchio and you get so much lore off of it that this is a great follow-up to something like a Tinkerbell Giant Fairy or a Grab Your Sword, or you can force them to do it for way less resources, right? You can just invest your your two-cost play and then maybe play something with higher willpower as your additional play for the turn, and you can hedge your bets because this is so much pressure that you're going to force them to do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, this is almost a sacrificial lamb, right? It's a very small body. You play it on two. Usually you get to quest one time with it for three lore, and then it's going to get challenged for very little gain on your side. But the gain is the lore. You know, uh, combat in Lorcana, yes, you have strength and willpower when you start comparing numbers about, you know, getting the characters off of the table. But the third dimension of combat is lore generation, and that is the key to winning the game. And this is the only two drop that quests for three, and it's brand new. And if you can protect it and you get a second quest off of it, man, it feels like it's going to be hard to come back from that. This specifically i think is going to encourage more people to play cheap direct interaction things like fire the cannons weren't that prevalent in chapter one constructed because it wasn't inkable but now in a world where cards like pinocchio star attraction exist 
cards like Fire the Cannons are going to go up in stock in so much value that I think you're just going to, you're going to see that. And that is going to mean, uh, Captain Hook, Captain of the Jolly Roger is going to see more play because more people are going to be playing things like Fire the Cannons. So, uh, it's just going to change a lot of the dynamics of, of, uh, how people build their decks too, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I think that this card may ultimately not end up seeing a ton of play. Like, I think it will out, out the gate, just like Lilo making a wish did. Mm -hmm. But I think it's going to fall off pretty quickly because all of those cards like Fire the Cannons are going to have to be more prevalent. And that's actually what this, I think this is going to be one of the single most influential cards to how decks are built moving forward, even though it will probably end up being removed from the decks just the threat of it will shift how the decks have to be built to keep up with a card like this because it is such a huge threat. Yeah, it's one of those things where often the threat of the thing is as important as the thing itself. Um, you know, if you play this on turn two on the play and your opponent doesn't have a way to defend against it, the game ends. And so you're going to see way more people uh, playing two drop characters in their deck to have like high strength just to be able to like punch through and challenge stuff. You're going to see more direct removal, uh, more AOE, uh, things that might not normally see play if, if they can deal with Pinocchio Star Attraction and to a lesser extent, uh, Lilo making a wish and Maleficent biding her time. You're just going to have a lot of those natural checks that are going to be showing up in decks. When I, I wrote Goon Theory, uh, for our Patreon, you know, a few months back, and I posited that the strength of Lilo making a wish encourages people to build their decks within mind. And that means using a lot of your resource blocks in your deck, uh, leaning towards those one cost goons or, you know, other one cost characters that can potentially challenge them. Because if you don't, they kind of run wild on you. And, and so I think that Pinocchio just kind of adds a second layer to that where I can play a Lilo and say, go, you play something that can challenge it. Okay. On my turn, I don't quest. I, uh, develop with a Pinocchio star attraction. You play another thing that can challenge. I play a big bodyguard that can protect both of them. And then you need a way to get rid of that so that you can get to my smaller, more juicy morsels. And we're just like, you know, playing this stagger game. And, uh, and it'll be nice to see how, how people approach that. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing it and what it's going to do to the metagame. All right, so that's Amethyst. We're going to be moving on to Emerald now. I'll start with mine. We're going to be talking about Donald Duck, the perfect gentleman. This is a four-cost inkable character. It's a 2-5, so the stats are pretty good, and it quests for two. It has shift three, so it can shift on the other uh, Donald Ducks, but it's kind of an expensive shift for a relatively weak body. Uh, I'll be looking to maybe shift this onto the two-drop Donald Duck um, uh, not Stratna stuff. That's the four drop from Sapphire, but I think there's a two cost two, three Donald Duck somewhere. Uh, but it says, uh, allow me at the start of your turn. Each player may draw a card. This is something that we've seen in magic quite a bit with Howling Mine, Kami of the Crescent Moon. This type of effect where it allows both players to draw cards can be powerful because it means that both players are flush with resources, but it also means that if you're a deck that translates cards to lore generation quite well which emerald is prone to doing i think that this is a great card for your strategy because hey giving your opponent more resources doesn't matter if they're dead yeah absolutely i think this card has the potential to be very very strong um another place that i my brain immediately goes to is something like emerald sapphire with bell uh strange yet but special where 
this can keep you flush on resources so that you can keep inking and sure. keep playing your bombs. And it's another way to break that that parity, kind of like we've seen with um, Bell versus Holding World decks, where, okay, yeah, we both got seven cards, but I get to use mine way better than you because my cards are bigger and I'm not slowed down. I'm not choked on resources. I can just keep playing two things a turn and I'll beat you on card quality, where in the reverse is true, where, okay, we both have a lot of resources, but now I have more ink and I can play my my two cards every turn and you are trying to catch up still and you're going to have a lot of cards in your hand but if i end the game with my bell before that who cares yeah i think that that's basically the key is using your resources to end the game as quickly as you can maybe pairing uh, emerald with something like those really big burst uh damage uh amethyst cards like the pinocchio we just discussed like uh you know, Maleficent biding her time and just leveraging every point of lore you can, squeezing every bit out of every single card. So by the time the game ends, you have an empty hand and 20 lore and your opponent has, you know, maybe a board full of stuff, maybe a handful of cards, but the game's over and them having more cards doesn't really matter if you could translate your extra cards to lore generation to end the game. Yeah, the, the I will say that the there is a big restriction on this in that if the decks that are being played are good at translating their cards in hand into resources on the table for instance if amber steel holy world stays popular this card may get held back by that because that deck is so good at playing all of its cards all the time and then you're you're basically like gassing up your opponent for them so this and sorry, I just wanted to say that yeah. Emerald is not great at playing from behind in the first place. So if you keep your opponent pedal to the metal, it's going to be even harder to come back. I, I completely agree with you. And this actually reminds me of a really funny instance in Magic the Gathering. Uh, back during uh, Pro Tour Honolulu 2006, it was actually my, my first Pro Tour I ever went to. And I remember uh, watching a top eight match uh, between one of the uh, Hall of Famer Ruel brothers, and he was playing Ebony Aonatsuke Howling Mind, this deck that was like very much about giving both players tons and tons of resources and then using it to deal damage to them. These decks were horrific against the low to the ground aggressive strategies that were able to translate damage more easily through onboard permanence. And in the top eight, Olivia, or I think it was Antoine Ruel mulliganed down to like, you know, no cards. Uh, or sorry, his opponent mulliganed down to like three or four cards, and it just didn't matter because the only way he, his deck could win was by giving the opponent resources to the extent that uh, instead of conceding, he added a an ancestral recall to his hand and cast it to draw three cards as a joke and then extended the hand because he knew it wouldn't matter. <laughs> so you're, you're absolutely right. Translating those extra cards to damage is very easy for some aggressive decks like Amber and Amethyst. And so because it's inkable, that means that you can ink this Donald Duck uh, perfect gentleman and uh, you just keep right on trucking. But against those control decks like uh, Ruby Amethyst that already have seven cards in hand, who cares if they have an extra resource? Yours are way more valuable. Yeah, I do want to touch on one last thing before we leave this card is, you know, the coming from Magic, the downside to all those cards like Howling Mine or Kami of the Crescent Moon was that your opponent got the resource first. 
This card does not work that way. Right. At the beginning of your turn, when you ready, when you ready with it, that is when each player gets to draw the card. And that's a huge change. You know, not giving your opponent a bonus card as soon as you pass and then they dr- just dragon fire a thing and you're like, and they're like, haha, thanks, idiot, for the extra card. Yeah. At least having to ready with it to get the, for your opponent to get the card is a big upgrade and, you know, might be the thing to move the needle on the card. All right. Next up, we're going to be discussing your pick for best emerald card. Hit me. Yeah, so this is not only my best my pick for best emerald card, it's my pick for best card in the set and maybe best card in the game. Uh, so my pick is Beast Relentless. He is a six-cost, inkable, four-five, quests for two, and has second wind. Whenever an opposing character is damaged, you may ready this character. Yeah. I think this card is bananas. Oh, yeah. Tell me what you can do with it. So uh, we've talked about this a little bit before on the, the pod, but... So you can sing a grab your sword is a nice, easy way to start. You and know, then it you just could, readies itself. Yeah, just as long as they had a character. Why? And that's why you sang the grab your sword in the first place. Yeah, he's just ready. He's ready to do whatever you want after that. Uh, so you, you could challenge their thing with him. And then as long as their thing had any strength, he readies. And did, right. Uh, and or sorry, actually, he just does the damage to the thing. And then he readies. And then he can just challenge another thing and ready again and challenge another thing. And, you know, all right, he did his job. He's in the bin, but, you know, he killed three characters, maybe. No, on top of that, man, like you also have the ability to quest with it, attack with your small character, ready it, quest with it again, attack with another small character, ready it, quest again. And that's, you know, that's just on the surface. I think that we're going to find... Beast Relentless has a lot of cool mini combos that work with, you know, things like uh, Tinkerbell, Giant Fairy. You're going to have all sorts of instances where both players develop a pretty large board. And then maybe at some point we find a deck that can give Beast Relentless rush, like we play it in a deck that plays, um, you know, White Rabbit's Pocket Watch. And so then you use that in conjunction with Pocket Watch to attack down all your opponent's stuff or a couple of characters. So I, I just love that there's no restriction on the on the ready for questing and uh, the body on it means that like if it doesn't die, it can just keep attacking until it's dead. In two months, I'm going to remind you when you're sick of this card that you said you're a fan of the it not having restriction on questing. <laughs> oh, I mean, look, I just want games to end more quickly because we have too many games going to time anyway. So if Beast Relentless is like the thing that ends that good. Yeah, he's going to he's going to be ending some games. Uh, I think it's also really cool. Like, I'm really excited. I've been waiting to play with like kind of the full spoiler um, Mm. to really dive in because, you know, it's really nice to play with the cards early. But sometimes it you end up like getting suckered by a card that you think is sweet. And then like way later in the spoiler, something comes out that hoses it. And then, you know, you're already tunneled on something else. But I think it's going to be sweet with. Like we were talking about the beast challenging and then like, you know, you use another thing to challenge whenever you're using another thing to challenge and teaming up with the beast to remove a character, you still get to just add in a quest. You know what I mean? Like the beast can challenge and and kill something and then, you know, he's ready. So then you quest and then send your small thing into their other thing that you're going to team up with the beast and you just get a bonus quest out of it, too. It's this card is. Unreal. Uh, 
I don't know what to say. It's good. It's real good. Yeah, I like it. It's really good with steel cards, but it's really good with Rapunzel too. That's true. I, I mean, it's just a good card. Like I, I think yeah. that the way that it works with your opposing small characters means that it works offensively to quest, right? And it also works defensively to challenge a bunch of things at once. Um, I find no faults. It's also inkable. Uh, worst thing about it is that it's only a four five instead of like a five five or a six five for that six cost, but. I mean, that's nothing when you start to think about the ramifications of just how many times it can quest in a single turn. All right. Uh, next up, we're going to be moving on to Ruby. And uh, I'll let you start with your Ruby card. Why don't you give us a rundown of what you picked? Yeah, so I have uh, Minnie Mouse. Uh, what is- stylish Surfer. Stylish Surfer. Oh, yeah. yeah. I couldn't read the stylish. All the best cards yeah, are surfing. Oh, yeah, they really are. She's styling on that surfboard. But yeah, so she's three cost, inkable, one three, two points of lore, and has evasive. Wow. That's some stats right there. Yeah, so I actually have this on here not for aggressive decks, although I do think she's going to be incredible in all the Ruby aggressive decks. I think this card actually has a perfect home in Ruby Amethyst. Really? Yeah, so you'll notice as we got later and later into this past metagame with set one where all these ruby amethyst decks started playing pongo and goofy right to be able to pressure your opponent while being evasive so it was hard to challenge back right and that way you could get some pressure in this card does that exact thing earlier and is an amazing body to sing friends on the other side because it has evasive that's true. That's a good point. You know, when we play other games, it's rare that something that's a good uh, like damage generator is something that you necessarily want to play early on in like your control deck. But, you know, from my experience, those are often some of the more powerful things in these games because they create a leverage point in the early turns that allow you to kind of sculpt out later turns uh, while A, giving you some amount of resources or B, interacting with your opponent in some way. I love that this can challenge a Pascal, which is uh, a, one of the more annoying cards to to beat when you're playing Ruby Amethyst. Um, I love that maybe with a little bit of a buff, you can attack and challenge an opposing uh, character that also has evasive. But mostly, I just like maybe a, a, a character that costs three and starts questing for two and can end the game sometimes before your opponent uh, has the ability to deal with it outside of like a five-cost Dragonfire. Yeah, this, this card has huge curve considerations being a three-slot. So you can just imagine the game where I play a Magic Mirror on turn two and then I play my mini on turn three, and I'm already off to the races. I have a threat in play. You have to answer me. Mm-hmm. And now on turn four, instead of me playing like a Pongo, I can just draw a card with the mirror, and I'm just already ahead. So what does it matter? You know, there's no... Like, you have to answer my board now because I already have the late game locked up, and I currently have pressure on you. So I'm going to draw a card, and then I'm going to dragon fire your big thing, and I'm going to keep questing. Yeah, I think Stylish Surfer just, you know, generates a lot of pressure for a very small amount of resource investment. You know, it has uh, three willpower, so it doesn't get blown up by things like Fire the Cannons or Grab Your Sword. Uh, it has uh, Inkable, which is nice, and only costs three. So a lot to love about Minnie Mouse Stylish Surfer. Uh, anything else? No, I, I think this card's great, and I think it's it's going to be an unsung hero. 
I mean, it know, might, it, it's my pick for best Ruby card. You know, I, I, I let yeah. you have it on yours. I, I picked mine after I saw what yours was. And m- mine is another version of Minnie Mouse, and that's Wide-Eyed Diver. And this is not something that I want to shift onto Minnie Mouse Stylish Surfer, but it's another evasive type of Minnie Mouse that maybe goes into a different style of deck. Uh, and I think that uh, it, it, the the stats on it are, are quite good as well. Uh, Four-cost inkable, 2-3, uh, two, Quest for one, and it has shift two. It's a very cheap shift, and we have uh, multiple uh, mini mouses already that cost one and two, and now three with mini mouse stylish surfer. Um, it has evasive like the stylish surfer, but it says whenever you play a second action this turn, this character gets plus two lore. And so what that means is that if you're playing a deck with a bunch of cheap, uh, you know, one cost. Uh, actions or songs that you're planning to sing this mini mouse wide-eyed diver can quest for three that's a, a huge deal yeah it, it puts a lot of pressure on your opponent very quickly in a deck that you know you almost have like a com combo focus to you when you're you're gonna fill your deck with you know cards like uh develop your brain and try and you know churn and assemble and you know i think this card having a ceiling of three lore might keep it from being, you know, too yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. You know, we, we talked a little bit before we started recording about, you know, what if this was just whenever you played an action, it got plus one. Um, I think the card would probably, obviously it would be better. Um, but I, I don't know if it would be too good then. And, you know, this is a card that we really won't know how good it is until we play with it. But also it's going to take time to figure out how to build the deck with it because it's not intuitive to how Lorcana decks are built. You know, this is, this reads way more similar to like a magic card than a Lorcana card. Yeah. I mean, look, you have to pair it with things that replace themselves. You have to pair with things that cost very little ink and the way that Lorcana is usually played, it's a scaling system, right? Like instead of trying to deploy a ton of things that cost one and two, most decks are built to go, one to six. And because of that, you know, if you have to play a bunch of these cheap, you know, cyclers or whatever, you're not able to play cheap characters that can interact with your opponent. And so that leaves like another uh, vulnerability point for your opponent to exploit via, via small characters. So, um, you know, a lot to think about when building with Wide Eye Diver. Um, I think it's a bit worse than Stylish Surfer, which is a shame because uh, the Stylish Surfer is like a common and the Wide Eye Diver is one of the cooler uh, rares in the set. But uh, I don't know. I'm more excited about the Stylish Surfer than Wide Eye Diver. Yeah, me too. Uh, I think, you know, th- this card's going to be a sweet build around. Um, I think. It's going to be a fan favorite for sure. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's going to be a competitive all-star. Um, I would venture to guess probably not. But, you know, you never really know what they're going to print later. Like, we might get some... We might get a really cool action that, you know, it plays an action from your discard pile. And then that immediately turns it on right there. You know, right. that that would be sweet. Um, you know, it, this card might have a bright future. It's definitely going to be sweet to play with, and everybody's going to have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I mean, we're just seeing building blocks right now, right? Mm -hmm. We're in the first couple sets. You're seeing a lot of cards being printed that 
will only get better. For example, like the singer mechanic, you know, like this is something that if it's on a card, you're always going to have to reevaluate that card once a song gets printed that has that number or less on it. And, uh, you know, it'll just be interesting to see how the game develops around things like Minnie Mouse Wide-Eyed Diver. Like what – what is the the break point? Do you ever allow zero cost uh, actions to be printed? And if you do, can they ever say draw a card on them? You know, you get into really sticky, dangerous territory uh, when you think when you have you know things that replace themselves and also maybe even uh, recoup the resources spent to play them. You know, imagine if you will a two cost um, you know card that generates more resources than you play, such as Zero to Hero. I don't know that Zero to Hero and Minnie Mouse Wide Eye Diver necessarily go in the same deck, but that type of resource generation, you know, and the card essentially paying for itself plus and being a song all lead into potentially having more viability for Wide Eye Diver. All right, uh, that is Ruby. Let's move on to Sapphire. We got a nice little pair of cards here. I'll start with mine. It's not that impressive. Uh, this is a two-cost Cogsworth talking clock. Uh, it's two costs for a 2-3 inkable and quest for one. And it has an ability that says, wait a minute. Your characters with Reckless gain exert, gain one lore. So Gaston, Arrogant Hunter, uh, these are types of cards that, you know, Maui here to all, these are cards that don't quest. And Cogsworth allows them to, which is kind of cool. But that's not why I like this Cogsworth. So I'm just going to basically skip over everything I want to say about this Cogsworth and let you talk about your card. It's all right. We we can share. We can share because right. uh, we, we actually both chose um, this shift Cogsworth as our Sapphire card for this episode. And, you know, Todd being the great guy that he is, he lets me have all my first picks and then, you know, he takes sloppy seconds. So I, I'm willing to share this one with him, but I'm keeping the next one. So uh, Big Cogsworth big, ugh, big Cogsworth is a five cost inkable, uh, two strength, five willpower, shifts for three, has ward, uh, two points of lore, and it has the ability... Unwind. Uh, Unwind. Yeah. Your other characters gain resist plus one. And that ability is ridiculous. Yeah. I don't I mean, know if um sorry, the if the viewers at home haven't seen the versus video we did with this card, if you want to go back, that's on our YouTube page here. And this card is gross. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah, I'm in fear of this card when this <laughs> comes out. So the it's uh, Cogsworth Grandfather Clock is the is the surname of it, and you know we we played a, a couple of games with this card in my deck. I built a Sapphire Ruby deck uh, called Gaston Gaston, where I was playing Arrogant Hunter to work with Cogsworth Talking Clock, but I was also playing a developed brain version of Gaston to be able to shift onto it, and I also wanted to play the the Cogsworth packages. Uh, because I thought that the grandfather clock was just so strong. And I mean, it was like picture perfect. The first time I put grandfather clock into play, it was like, oh, none of my AOE cards do anything anymore. None of my small characters challenge anymore. And as long as my Cogsworth grandfather clock is at the ready, no one can challenge it and no one can target it with removal. And so all of your other characters just get that really powerful resistibility across the board, uh, which makes it so difficult for your opponent to interact with you. Yeah, I think uh, early on, people are going to shove this in all their Sapphire decks because this card is 
ridiculously good. It's very strong. It's so much and better think, than the Aurora that exists that gives everything ward, and people love that card. I don't know why. Yeah, and and uh, the Jasmine that heals um, all your characters for two when it comes in and, and when it quests. Cogsworth does basically half that just off the jump with resist, right? Right. Um, so kind of diminishes the need for it. And the thing that people are, I think, going to very quickly catch on to is that this card is not for questing. It has those two points of lore, but that only happens once, and that's at the end of the game. Yeah. <laughs> Keep and, this uh, guy ready. We, we, we learned that pretty quick. I was trying to find little places to squeeze in uh, some quests for two, and every time I did, I got max punished. And then even uh, moving past that, when we when we had the Lost Boys Lorcana Invitational at uh, Apex Gaming last month, you know, one of the trends I saw among the best players was just stop. Don't do anything in the first five turns other than play characters. The moment you start singing, the moment you start questing, that leaves you vulnerable to opposing interaction, whether it's challenging or a combination of a removal spell plus challenging. They're able to break through your defenses pretty well. And so if you just always leave Cogsworth at the ready and you never quest with it, it's very difficult for your opponent's effects and challenges to do much of anything against any of your characters. Absolutely. Yeah, early game Lorcana is a lot like playing chess. You know, you're moving your pieces around, jockeying for position on the board, and it's all about threatening to do something, not actually doing it. Right. You know, you you really want a good closed position, and Cogsworth, Grandfather Clock, is like a queen in the back corner. You know, she's laser beaming everyone, making sure you're not doing nothing, and, you know, that yeah. the threat is better than, you know getting your queen up in the mix and losing it. Yeah, I think uh, both these Cogsworths are somewhat valuable. Uh, the two cost one, talking clock, you know, the stats on it are good. It's a two, three. Uh, it can challenge an opposing one drop character with ease. Uh, I doubt that the reckless ability is going to gain you too much lore in the long run. Uh, I think if you play, you know, Ruby Sapphire together, that's a great place for that Cogsworth to do something other than be just a generic shift body. Um, but I really think that it enabling the five cost uh, grandfather clocks, you know, shift just makes that card even better than it already is, which is a phenomenal five drop as it stands. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for the deck building challenge of how many, you know. Uh, Cogsworth ticking clock do I play do I want any in my deck because my grandfather clocks are on, they're only five cost I right. could just play those but you know getting that card down even earlier is really powerful because that's a spot where I could quest for two because they don't have the characters in play to challenge it and also you know do I want to have a two cost role player in my deck do I need to have a different two cost role player this is inkable right. you know I can just ink it to develop it, I, I'm excited for that portion of it a lot. All right, we're going to be moving on to our last pair here. We're going to be moving into steel, and uh, I'll start with mine again, but we're going to go pretty fast into yours because this is another one-two punch. Uh, to start, we're going to go with Cinderella Knight in Training. This is a two-cost, two-two, quest for one, and it's inkable. The ability is have courage. When you play this character, you may draw a card and then choose and discard a card. That ability, very similar to uh, Simba Future King's ability, but I think the stats on Cinderella, just having one more strength, means that it rumbles in combat a little bit better. I like that it's inkable, but what I like most is that it's a shift target for your card. Yes. So my card is seven cost, uh, inkable. It's Cinderella Stouthearted. 
She's five strength, five willpower. Quest for three has shift five and resist two. Huge ability. And then the real kicker is the singing sword. Whenever you play a song this turn, this character may challenge ready characters this turn. Yeah, just a importantly a huge it's body. Play a song, not sing a song. Uh, I think that it counts. I well, think no, no, no. So like you, you can sing or play it. Is what I'm. Oh, saying. sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so it doesn't like, require you, you to, sing, to it. sing it, but you can sing it to get this ability. Gotcha. And I think this card is going to be like a fundamental include in steel decks moving forward because of two of the other cards we have in this video. Cogsworth Grandfather Clock and Beast Relentless, where both of those characters realistically are always going to be ready and are a nightmare for steel decks to deal with. No, I, I think that that's a, a great point. I mean, uh, I think Steel having two of the more widely played songs with A Whole New World and uh, Grab Your Sword, you know, pairing that naturally with amber and amber having some songs and then using aerial spectacular singer i think that stout just becomes like your de facto late game drop and if you can pair it with zero to hero in the stitch blitz style strategy you just get just monstrous shift characters at the top end that are inkable so that that doesn't cause you to stumble early but then uh they have payoffs at either the like turn three or four slot with zero to hero on the super explosive draws or uh, they just pair really nicely in your natural curve by letting you go shift on five, directly challenge something, and then the resist two protects it from taking basically any damage in any of those challenges. And then if you your opponent has that problem character, it becomes a surgical knife, right? You get to sing one of your songs, even just, um, you know, the Be Our Guest, right? You sing that off a simple protective cub, and then suddenly Cinderella becomes a laser beam that just shoots right into your opponent's best character. Yeah, I, I think that two, two of the abilities on this card are massive, which obviously is the shift, um, because seven is a pretty restrictive cost in this game. Um, you're gonna get there, but a lot of times you, your sevens need to have impact the turn you play them, you know, like Ursula, Surfer Stitch, uh, Hades, Schemer, where this Cinderella is not going to have that impact unless you're shifting it. So it's really important to have this lower cost Cinderella in the same color, right? Because then you can, you can play this in any steel deck. It doesn't have to be a specific steel pair, um, which is huge. And then this card, not only is it an amazing defensive tool because of its the singing sword ability, but it is an amazing threat. It quests for three is a five five and has resist two. It's only, so it's so hard to kill this thing and by challenging it. Yeah, the only like <laughs> commonly played card that kills this in combat is Maleficent Dragon, Monster's Dragon, which costs nine. <laughs> this effectively costs five. And then the Maleficent might have blown it up anyway, but like it, it has to have seven strength to clear this thing. I mean, what what this says to me basically is that if you want to interact with this Cinderella, it's not going to be uh, by dealing damage. Uh, you know, resist one. We've seen how strong that is in testing already, just by playing the Cogsworth uh, grandfather clock, and now we're going to get to see 
uh, you know, the uh, resist two ability on such a large character, the quest for three, and has that, you know, just laser nature with uh, singing sword. Um, you know, I, I have to imagine that this is going to be top three cards in the set. Uh, and I think that combined with Cinderella Knight in training, you're just going to have an easy way to get it into play with that steel package. And uh, I, I look at steel as the best color in the game right now because of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this Cinderella is going to be almost like an auto include, um, just like this package, just like Tinkerbell Giant Fairy is in every steel deck. This Cinderella also is going to be doing the same thing. Um, steel is a, an archetype, is already built around songs in general with Grab Your Sword. And then this is just, it's your best counterplay against the cards that are good against you, like Cogsworth Grandfather Clock. And it's just the best threat you can play. Steel has not had good three-point questers. The the only one we really had in Chapter 1 was Maui, uh, Deity God, and he costs eight for an 80. <laughs> <laughs> like, He's a big boy, but uh, it's kind of slow. Yeah, historically, Steel has not been terribly great at questing. They were just so good at controlling the board that you win slower, but you still win. But right. now they get to do both. This card just controls the board, is really hard to remove, and quests for three. My only problem with Simba Future King, the one cost looter from Steel, was that only one strength meant it was very easy for your opponent to eat in combat, which meant that it was ink most of the time, unless you already had uh, something like, um, you know, Stitch Rockstar on the table and were able to play it and, and draw an extra card off of it and sacrificing it at will was actually just more than fine. Uh, the Cinderella Knight in Training being able to loot when it comes in, discarding one of your uninkable uh, songs if like you're far away from being able to, to use it, I think makes a world of difference in terms of smoothing out your draws and maybe playing all eight of them, uh, you know, for Future King and for Cinderella Knight in Training. You know, I know Kurt Spies, uh, one of our top eight competitors at the Lost Boys Lorcan Invitational, was playing four copies of Future King. He actually ended up winning the uh, uh, Games and Comics Paradise uh, 2K that you attended uh, last weekend, and he was playing for Future King. So I think maybe we just find some way to 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 shove these together into the same package, hopefully. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, that is going to do it for uh, all of our cards from uh, Rise of the Floodborne, Disney's Wakanda Chapter 2. We went over two cards from each color that we thought were going to have a significant impact on the constructed format. And uh, those are our picks. Uh, moving on, we have a few segments left that we'd like to do. And we're going to start off with one of my favorites, Ask Carlin Anything. All right, so we're here for Ask Harlan Anything, and we have a nice one from one of my good friends, Braden MTG. Braden says, nothing to hide. The new card from Sapphire. Each opponent reveals their hand, draw a card, cost one, and is inkable. He says, is this card good in any deck, Harlan? Yeah, so the, the short answer I gave Braden uh, directly was not currently, but, you know, we this is part of a second chapter coming out. It has a lot of potential for the future. You know, this reminds me... So it reminds a lot of people that came from Magic to Lorcana as Gataxian Probe, when in reality it's actually Peak, which is a much <laughs> worse worse Magic card. But it does have the, the caveat of, this is an ink. It's inkable. You can just play it as an ink when you don't have that free resource. So it 
you know, occupies a much a very similar space with develop your brain. And I think where it's actually going to shine is with uh, your card for Ruby this week, which was mini mouse wide eyed diver. Yes. This gives you that critical mass of actions potentially to turn on your Mickey's every turn. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, You know, it's one of those cards, like, again, it's only going to get better over time, and its effect is minimal, but it's inkable. And so there's very little downside other than just how it restricts your physical deck building, but it does replace itself. So later in the game, it's just going to basically mean the next thing you draw costs one more, but you get some more information about whether or not your opponent has something like be prepared in hand. So a very minor effect, but one that can offer a lot of important information given uh, the right context. Yeah, I, th- I think this card is really going to shine on like turns three, four, maybe five, where you're both still in that jockeying position for that initial board state before the game really becomes about, all right, what am I drawing from here? You know, that that's going to be the tail end of, all right, I sculpted my game plan after my mulligan. This is what I'm going to be doing this game. And knowing what your opponent is building towards, when you still have enough resources to kind of pivot, is huge. And that's where I think this card will shine, if it shines at all. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be one of those cards where, you know, people are going to just shove four in their deck when they buy a box of uh, Chapter 2 and they slot it into their Sapphire deck. But they're going to realize that, oh, I drew this on turn five or six. Uh, I don't really need another ink. Uh, playing it means I don't get to play my six drop. Uh, okay. All right. I start to see where the downside comes from. But then you're going to have some spots where it's like, oh, I have five ink and a four drop in my hand. I'm going to see what you have going on over there. Oh, you have a grab your sword. Okay, I need to play around that. So instead of playing, you know, this character that quests for three but has, you know, two willpower, I'm going to instead play this thing that has three willpower and only quests for two to play around it. So, you know, a, a little bit of give and take. I think that its its true strength will derive from uh, things that can sit and play and gain value from playing actions. And uh, Minnie Mouse uh, Diver is one of those things. And uh, if we get more, maybe those types of cards will be much stronger in the future. One thing I do want to caution the viewers at home about when you're playing this card, it is a bit worse than Develop Your Brain. And something, if you've already been playing with Develop Your Brain, have probably noticed is that oh, do I ink this? Well, I have an extra ink available this turn and, you know, I can ju- I'll just draw a card that's inkable anyway and, you know, maybe I'll find something better and if not, I'll just ink that thing. This card, you don't get the, the choice of two cards, right? You're way more likely to hit an uninkable off of this. Right. So proceed with caution. If, you know, you have a pretty high uninkable count, Sometimes it's better just to not know what's in their hand and just guaranteed hit your ink drop right. for the turn. So now, one last thing I want to that. note, too, is that there is a rule in Lorcana that strictly prevents taking notes. This rule is designed to make sure that both players are not revealing their ink, writing it down, and having information for later about everything your opponent's inked so that you have perfect information about what cards are left in their deck or in their hand. It creates a lot of really small problems. And so when you look at their hand, you just have to take a photograph in your mind and that's it. And then as the game progresses, you can say, Hey, did you have a be prepared in hand? When I looked at it two turns ago, your opponent can say, it's me. I don't remember. 
you know? So keep that in mind. You're not allowed to take notes about your opponent's hand. That's a lot different than Magic the Gathering, where these cards like Peak and Gitaxian Probe uh, would allow players to write down the contents of their opponent's entire hand. Uh, well, Harlan, uh, I don't think it's that good to do card of the week this week because we did 12 cards of the week, basically. <laughs> yeah, we extended your, your favorite segment. That's true. That's true. Well, second favorite segment behind Ask Carlin Anything. If you know, would like all of those and only one of your favorite. Okay. Well, maybe so. next week's episode we'll ask Harlan 12 things. That sounds fun. Ooh. So make sure to, uh, if you'd like your question to be read on screen, on stream, on podcast, make sure to uh, tag us in the comments. Make sure to tag us on Twitter at Lost Boys LOR. Ask Carlin a question. Ask Carlin anything. Maybe your question will get bit picked for next week. Thanks again to Braden MTG for asking his question this week. We really appreciate you. Uh, for uh, all things coming up uh, Lorcana-wise, there is a tournament at our sponsors store coming up in uh, about 10 days, I believe. Not this weekend, but next weekend. We're going to be uh, heading up to uh, Games and Comics Paradise in Fairfax, Virginia for their uh, release event for Disney's Lorcana Chapter 2. Should be a really fun time. Uh, make sure to head on out to gcparadise.com for all of your TCG needs from uh, Disney's Lorcana all the way down to Magic the Gathering and Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, gcparadise.com's got you covered on singles as well as all your supplies. Thanks again to GC, uh, Games of Comics Paradise for sponsoring the Lost Boys podcast. Uh, I think that's going to do it for me this week. You got anything else you want to say to the viewers at home, Mr. Harlan, before we say goodbye? Just uh, keep an eye on previews and um, yeah, let, let us know your questions for yeah. sure. Um, I've really enjoyed answering these questions and you know, a lot of people have DM me and stuff, but it, it's great to have them on the episode. Um, and yeah, love to the viewers at home. All right. Well, thank you so much to everyone for uh, watching uh, this week's uh, podcast or listening to it on, on where you listen to podcasts. Uh, we'll be doing essentially a full set review, I think, in the near future once we get the entirety of the set. Uh, that'll be more of a quick hits thing where we just look at every card, give our initial impressions. You know, we'll talk about a, maybe a thing or two if we want to harp on any specific card. But, um, you know, we're going to have all access to the entirety of the spoiler within the next seven days. And uh, we'll be trying to get that out to you as soon as we can. Uh, thank you so much to... Uh, all of our uh, behind the scenes folks our, our director Dan you know he has to cut this together out of all of my mistakes and, and I appreciate him uh, and uh, for you at home thanks again for watching uh, I'm Tandy of the Lost Boys and that's Harlan say bye Harlan bye Harlan <laughs>